I'm Tavis Smiley, and uh, I am pleased that you're hanging out with us today on our program. In this hour, what happens when you're recording a police stop, the police get annoyed by your very presence, and they turn around and arrest you, <laughs> throw you in the paddy wagon, and haul you off to jail? Can they actually do that? Well, whether they can or not, that's exactly what they did to Jill Colin Jefferson of the civil rights and international human rights firm Julian, named after the late, great Julian Bond. You'll hear right about now the story of Jill's arrest and what happened next. I am pleased to have Jill Colin Jefferson on this program. Jill, how are you today? I'm doing well, Tavis. How are you? I'm always better when I hear your voice, and if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am delighted uh, to uh, have an opportunity to talk to you once again about your work and your witness. Uh, but we'll start this conversation with what I teed up a moment ago uh, about what happened to you. So um, you know how we do it around here. I'm going to pass the mic to you. Take a moment. Tell me the story. Yeah, yeah, sure. So this happened in June. It actually happened about a little over a week after Kristen Clark, the Attorney General for Civil Rights, had just come from that town. Mm-hmm. So I had been meeting with her about what was going on, the issues there in Lexington, Mississippi. We've spoken about Lexington before Tavis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to Lexington that particular evening. It was a Saturday evening because... I knew that the police were going to be out and honestly acting a fool. Because whenever black people in Lexington have events, the police, they put up roadblocks, they falsely arrest people, they do all kinds of stuff like that. So I wanted to go to capture footage of this because we had sued them last year. We're currently in a lawsuit against them, and I'm the lead counsel in that lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So I'm driving around Lexington, I have a passenger with me. we just come from this big event that black people had hosted, and I see the police arresting somebody near the town square. I drive by, and we're recording it. And the whole thing looks really, really suspicious. And so I decide to turn around and go back, but I had to make a loop around the square. So the person I was with said, you know what? If you go back around there, the police are going to get you, and I don't want to wrestle with them tonight. So he actually got out of the car on the corner, Mm. and I drove back around to where the police were. I had my phone in my left hand recording. I was driving with my right hand, and as soon as the cop saw me, I never stopped. As soon as the cop saw me, he flagged me down with his flashlight, um, flagged me to a stop. I let my window down. He said, show me your driver's license. And I said, what? (laughs) (laughs) For, For what? And he said, show me your license. And I said, is this a roadblock? He said, no. I said, so why do you need to see my license? And he said, why are you recording me? And at that point, I called my attorney. I stopped recording and called my attorney. Um, my attorney is in my ear, and he's telling me, he's like, of course, Joe, we, we both know they can't do this. And I'm like, but it's happening right now. And, you know, of course I know what to do, but I wanted to have a witness in that moment. And so he tells me, he says, you know, Jill, of course, we know this is met, this is like ridiculous, but just show them your ID. I take my ID out of my wallet. The officer reaches in and snatches my phone from me and hangs up on my attorney. I did not know that he had hung up on my attorney, but he did. Hung up on my attorney, snatched my ID. He starts pulling at the car door, like yanking at the car door, but the, the door was locked. 
So he reaches his hand in my car, unlocks the car door, yanks it open, pulls me out of the car, pushes me up against the car, and starts arresting me. At this point, I see my phone on top of the car, and I'm thinking that my attorney is still on the phone. So I'm yelling at my phone. I'm saying, Mike, Mike, I need you to come now. And I look, and I touch my phone, my free hand, and it's, it's, it's dead. You know, he's hung up on him. And so they put me in the backseat of the police car. I watched them as they illegally searched my car. They searched my entire car from top to bottom. Um, they went through my, they, in my trunk, they went through my briefcase. I, I did have exhibits for the case against them in my car. They went through everything. Then they went through the driver's side. They went under the seat, and the police officer, this white officer, found my gun. And I heard him say, he said, oh, looky here, I sure hope it's stolen. Mm. And at that point, you know, they get in the car, they get in the police car, and they take me to the station, and I tell them, I said, you guys could not have given me better evidence than this, thank you. And so we get to the police station, and there are all these other poli- people that they've arrested. They have not Mirandized anybody. Mm. They are telling people at the police station that they can plead guilty at the police station to avoid going to court. I was told, I said, that is not true. That, that's wrong, you know. They keep threatening me, trying to intimidate me, and tell me they're going to take me to jail. And I said, okay, I'm looking forward to it. And so it comes down to a fee of paying $35 to be let go. And I said, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not paying you guys $35. And so they took me to jail. All right, that's the backstory. <laughs> Beautifully told. Um, sad but uh, uh, and sick. Uh, but nicely told. Now we can start our conversation. You're listening to Jill Colin Jefferson of the Civil Rights and International Human Rights Firm, Julian on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Sounds different, huh? This is Tavis Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley in dialogue with Jill Colin Jefferson. Uh, who was arrested for recording a police stop in Mississippi, Lexington to be exact. Uh, and uh, I just asked her at the outset of this conversation to just share the backstory of what happened. She did that uh, quite nicely. Um, let me just, uh, before I get back to the story uh, and how uh, it ended, at least that part of it, Jill, um, to your mind, given that you're based in Mississippi, but obviously do work across the country, um, and we're heard across the country on this program. Is this just Mississippi, or is this uh, this kind of reckless behavior? Um, you think um, from California to the Carolinas? This is across the country. This mm-hmm. is not just Mississippi. I think people pay attention to it more because Mississippi is in it. But this happens everywhere. Yeah. Um, so back to your story. They uh, demand that you pick, make a thirty-five dollar payment. You uh, have done nothing, so you ain't given them $35, which I'm sure you could have. But on a, uh, as a matter of principle, you chose not to pay the $35. Um, you, went, you mentioned earlier you were seeing all these folk who they've arrested. None of them are being Mirandized. And for those who I think this got a really smart audience, they know what Mirandized means. But for those who may, might need a quick refresher course, that means you get you get read your rights. You have the right to remain silent, yada, 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 all that stuff you see in these TV shows all the time. Um, so these people are not being Mirandized. Uh, they're being told they can plead guilty. Uh, they're trying to get Jill to pay them $35. She refuses. They haul you off to a jail cell. And then what? Well, it actually ends up being a really fortunate situation. I stayed in jail for two days. 
Um, while I was in jail, I actually was in a cell with some women that I've been trying to contact, <laughs> women who had been assaulted by the police. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it worked out really well. I, 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 so, I, I know the song, There's a Meeting in the Ladies' Room, but I ain't heard the song, There's a Meeting in the Jail Cell, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I ain't heard that track yet, but go ahead. It was, it was really, it worked out perfectly. You know, we had been looking for women. We knew that Lexington police officers had been sleeping with women or, you know, trying to sleep with women in exchange for not ticketing them or arresting them. Mm -hmm. And I ended up in jail with two of those women that that had happened to. Mm. And so got their stories, you know, ended up getting one of them out with me. Um, you know, and the whole thing brought more attention to the fact that what the thing that I, I need people to know is that this happened to an attorney mm -hmm. who they knew who I was. Yeah. The, the officers who arrested me knew me. One of the officers who was there, I had actually, I was standing beside him four days earlier talking about how he was a corrupt officer. Mm. <laughs> he heard me talking about how he was a corrupt officer and then he arrested me four days later. So if they do this to somebody who knows what their rights are, somebody who has resources, imagine what they're doing to people in the poorest county in the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is a predominantly black county, and in in, it is the poorest county in the country, and these is the worst police crisis we've seen in 50 years. But because it's such a small town, it's only about 1,800 people, Nobody is paying attention to it, you know, and so my arrest, I hope, has brought attention to what's going on in this tiny town because they're still they're still operating under Jim Crow there. Mm -hmm. How did you process um, to your point? It, it worked out. So you had the meeting in the, in the jail cell and, and you were able to get one of those sisters out with you, which is a beautiful thing. Um, but how did you process sitting in that jail cell for two days when you knew you had done nothing wrong? You know, I honestly, this is not at all to make a comparison here, but I thought about Reverend Dr. King. Sure. You know, and, you know, letter from a Birmingham jail. And when I was there, you know, I, I just, I said, all right, this is meant, this is meant for something. This yeah. is not for me. This is for something else. And so I took that time to, I wrote a letter to Kristen Clark explaining what happened to me and got it out. Some guards helped me get the letter out to my team who got it to the Department of Justice. You know, we ended up getting the story out to the media. It was a, it was also something that just made me see what a waste of life, quite honestly, just being in jail is. Mm -hmm. You know, because you're in there, there is, there is nothing for you to do. There are no classes. There was no TV. There was nothing. You don't have, you, you're sitting there for 24 hours a day. And you know, for me, I only did that for two days. I have I have clients who have been in who have been in prison for twenty years. Yeah. It put things in a whole different perspective for me. Yeah. Um, when you invoked Dr. King's name, um, which I often do, this audience knows that I regard him as the greatest American this country has ever produced. Uh, again, if you didn't hear me say this earlier, <clears throat> tomorrow is the fortieth anniversary of the day that Ronald Reagan, um, in protest. Uh, signed the King Holiday Bill into law, and then months later we commemorated the first King Holiday. Well, Arizona didn't. It took a long time to get them on the good foot, uh, as uh, James Brown might say. But tomorrow, 40 years ago, 
Uh, Ronald Reagan signed the King Holiday Bill into law. And so tomorrow I've got some great guests on our program tomorrow, including Michael Eric Dyson, including Brianna Joy Gray, including some woman named Nikki Giovanni. It's going to be a great show tomorrow. Um, but you, you mentioned Dr. King, so that's why I wanted to just mention to the audience um, who our guests are tomorrow. But I, I often invoke King because I regard him, again, so highly. And I, I find myself saying to people, as you uh, did a moment ago, it's not about comparison. It's about inspiration. That's what it is for me. It's never a comparison to King. We ain't trying to be King, though we can't be. But the inspiration of thinking about King while you're sitting in a jail cell, how he used his time. Um, right. to, to write that letter from Birmingham jail. So I, I didn't take it as a comparison. Now that I don't think the audience did either. It's inspiration. And, and I, I receive it in the spirit that, that you offered it. Um, let, me, let me, let me just, let me just ask this, Jill. Um, I, I'm always fascinated. Every time I talk to you, I'm always fascinated <clears throat> by you and, and the work that you do. But, but, but principally I'm, uh, I am always, uh, inspired by why you do the work that you do. Uh, and I, I come back to the come back to that in this conversation because you told the story earlier of how the brother that was in the car with you when you looped back around said I ain't trying to tussle with these cops tonight. Let me out. And 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 and, and that Negro got out the car before yes, before I am mad at him. But everybody has the right to self determination. But he he jumped out the car before you before you looped back around. And had he been in the car with you and you looped back around, he might have been sitting in jail for two days as well. I, I, again, yes. I, I come back to that because it it fundamentally raises the question about the courage and the conviction and the commitment and the character to put yourself in harm's way, to assign yourself to do this kind of work. So for those who've never heard the story about why you do this work, tell me. Well, Tavis, it, it go, it's deep. You know, I'm, I was born and raised in the sticks of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother and my aunt were maids for this white judge named Charles Pickering, who George Bush tried to appoint to the Fifth Circuit when he was president. Yep. Um, so Judge Pickering had a granddaughter who was my best friend. And when I was almost six, he separated us. The same thing happened to Megar Evers. I did not see her again until two years ago. He separated us because I was black and she was white. And that, for me, was the beginning of understanding race. I was five when I understood that. I got called the N-word for the first time at five. You know, I grew up, you know, I met Sam Bowers, um, the mm -hmm. imperial wizard of the KKK during the height of the Civil Rights Movement, the man who who authorized the, the assassination of Meg Revers and the three civil rights workers during Freedom Summer. I had a run-in with that man when I was just 13 years old, you know. Um, I had my experience in Mississippi. My father, he saved the life of a, of a Klansman. And we came, we came to find out, like, years later, when I was in college, actually in, in Professor Bond's class, that that man had been an informant for the White Citizens Council, and he had informed on people in my community, black people who I had known. So, you know, I saw lynchings. When I was growing up, we heard about lynchings happening in high school. You know, it was something where my brothers would tell me if I would get on their nerves, they would say, I'm going to go drop you off in Cracker's Neck, mm. which is the area of the, our, our town where the white people lived. And you did not go there by yourself if you were black. But they would say, we're going to drop you off there. And that would scare me enough into doing what I needed to do and to, and to, <laughs> and to do whatever they wanted me mm. to do, rather. And so I grew up with racism kind of constantly chasing me and this terror 
of of what could happen in the night, honestly, growing up in Mississippi. And I realized one day that I feel this terror because I'm meant to fix it, you know, that mm. I haven't had these experiences for no reason. And so meeting Professor Bond, he took me under his wing. I met him in college. He told me that my purpose in life was to be a disciple of civil rights, he said, because I understood it better than my peers, so I had a responsibility to teach them. After that, I went to John Lewis's office on Capitol Hill and learned civil rights policy and worked on some bills there. And then I went to the White House and worked in, you know, Barack Obama was president at that point, and I became a political speechwriter um, and was one of four speechwriters on his, on his 2012 campaign. And so that was kind of my story, just going from this terror and trying to figure out how to manufacture it into something, into hope and into freedom, honestly. It's the line of the day. Um, I never know when it's going to come. Uh, I do three hours every day, and at some point, there's always something. And most days, some things, plural, but there's always something that I hold on to for the rest of the day and just marinate on, and it, it just hit me. Uh, I feel this terror because I am meant to fix it. I feel this terror because I am meant to fix it, um, Jill Colin Jefferson. I um. I know a lot of folk who have felt terror and in parts of my life, moments of my life, I have felt terror. And yet, um, if I can interrogate that line that I feel this terror because I am meant to fix it. There are a lot of folk who feel it, but don't have the courage, the conviction, the commitment, the character to assign themselves to fix it. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, the first time I met Credit Scott King. We eventually became friends, but I met Mrs. King for the first time. Uh, and I was having lunch with she and Bernard Lafayette, one of Dr. King's lieutenants. Wow. And Bernard Lafayette said to me on the very first time I met he and Mrs. King, uh, Tavis, if you're old enough to experience racism, you're old enough to fight against it. He just put mm. it he just put it right out there. If you're old enough to experience it, you're old enough young man to start fighting against it. Uh, and so he encouraged me to assign myself, as Julian Bond said to you, Bernard Lafayette and Mrs. King said to me, um, if you, in, in, you know, the same frame, if you sort of feel this terror, if you're subjected to this racism, then um, you are meant to fix it and you ought to assign yourself to do so. Uh, again, I, I say all that to, to, to ask a very simple question, which is it's one thing to feel it. It's another thing, uh, though, Jill, to assign yourself to do something about it. Not everybody does. Everybody may feel the former, but they don't do the latter. Well, I hear you, Tavis. Like, this is something that. I don't feel like I assigned it to myself. I feel like this is my calling. Mm -hmm. I feel like God called me to this work. This is the thing that gets me going. This is the thing that inspires me. This is the thing that I love most. The civil rights movement is the love of my life. Mm -hmm. And in all of this, you know, freedom is like one of is the thing that I revere most. And so I want people to feel that. I don't think that it was for no reason that all these things have happened to me. I think, you know, it's, it, it's so few people make it out of Mississippi. And I just saw, like, you know, God didn't put all of that behind mm -hmm. somebody mm -hmm. for them to just, you know, not do anything with it. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how I see it. Um, and so how do you, I appreciate your saying that. No, no, no. How, 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 what does freedom mean to you? How, how do you define freedom? That's a word that, that uh, we often use. Uh, and I'm not sure there's necessarily a universal definition to it. I have my own, uh, but I'm curious as to yours. How, how does Jill Collin Jefferson define freedom? What's, what's freedom mean to you? 
Yeah, yeah. So I just, first, just to make the distinction between, like, how people a lot of times think about freedom. They mm-hmm. think about freedom as, like, being free from something. Mm-hmm. I don't see freedom as being free from something. I see freedom as a thing in and to itself. I see freedom as something you're going to. Mm. Like, you are free to live in bliss. You are free to do whatever you want to do from day to day without the police just barging into your life unnecessarily. You are free to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like, that is what this nation guarantees. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I think about freedom. I don't really think about, you know, getting free from something because that's always... It's it's it kind of like burdens freedom, mm-hmm. you know, and it doesn't even it limits it. It doesn't show all that it can be. Freedom is like everything. It's the horizon, and so that's what I think about when I think about freedom, and that's how I see it and how I define it. Yeah, um, I'm wondering whether or not, writ large, you think black folk in this country say nothing in Mississippi, but black folk in this country will ever experience that definition of freedom. I do. Mm. I do. Mm. And that is part of what my work is, is not just to end lynchings. The the goal at the end of this at the end of the day is to foster freedom for every person. And for me that is that is the goal. That is in thirty years, that's what I wanna see. Mm-hmm. And yet, um three decades from now we'd have to be in a far different place than where we are now. Your earlier comment was that we are in many, in many respects experiencing the worst police crisis uh, that we've seen in generations. Uh, that's a far cry from this, this bliss you're talking about experiencing 30 years from now. It is. It is. It's very far. But the work that we do every day gets us there. You know, when I was in Congressman Lewis's office, I once asked him, I said, what did y'all do? between the winds because mm. you know you we people focus on the events of the civil rights movement this this victory of the birmingham bus of the of the montgomery bus boycott the victory in birmingham mm. you know and and bull connor and you know selma people focus on the victories but there were years mm. several years in between mm. these things and i said what did you do in between that time and he said we kept the faith mm-hmm. and we kept working and so that's what I think about. We're so far from it, but we have seen small victories. And I believe that some more victories are coming. I think they're coming soon. And what I'll also say is in the fight that we have, you know, so much of this stuff, part of the fight is making, is bringing awareness to this. So even this conversation, Tavis, is a step forward because it's bringing more awareness to what's going on. There's more conversation to have, uh, more awareness to bring to light. Uh, uh, Glad I got another half hour with Jill Collin Jefferson. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Ready to reexamine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. So, Jill, give me uh, a better sense of um, after spending two days in that jail cell, um, how you got out, who got you out, and what happened when you got out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, How I got out was public pressure. Um, The fact that I was in jail, it was all over the news, um, and people were calling the sheriff, people were calling the police, 
and the pressure mounted to the point where they just let me out without making me pay the thirty-five dollars mm. because they were just it just they looked so bad for locking me up in the first place. Mm-hmm. What 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 do you make of there are a number of, of uh, I suspect lessons in that 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 reality. Um, it's both I think your answer will be both instructive and informative. But what do you make of the fact that they responded to public pressure? It lets me know that they're not immune to shame. Mm -hmm. And that's an important thing because there is a point where there is no shame for some people. Mm -hmm. And it lets me know that we have not gotten to that point yet in Lexington. I will say that the public pressure from leaking the audio last year of the police chief, you know, saying the N-word and confessing to killing 13 people, that public pressure got him fired. Mm-hmm. So that was another time in Lexington where public pressure paid off. Yep. Um, let, me, let, me, let me follow up on your, 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 um, uh, your notions about shame. Um, there was a time earlier in my career when I thought that shame was a much more powerful <laughs> tool um, in, in our country. And I'm not sure that I have completely given up on the power that is pregnant in publicly shaming people. Um, I'm just wondering whether or not we've gotten to the point where uh, officials and electeds uh, are so pompous, so arrogant, so brazen, that even shame isn't the effective tool that it used to be. I'm thinking of Tommy Tuberville, you know, out of Alabama and other public electeds who are just so far gone. I mean, you you can't mm-hmm. shame Tommy Tuberville. You can't shame Matt Goetz. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it may be that you can't shame Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House. Uh, so talk to me about shame as a as a as a tool for public correction, if you will. Yes, yes. So it's on a case-by-case basis. It definitely depends on the person. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any way in hell I can shame Tate Reese in right. anything, mm-hmm. you know? And so what I will say is that we're very precise about when we use it and how we use it. Julian actually works with a cognitive scientist who is on our board, and she's instructed us on shame and how to actually go about different conversations with prosecutors, with, with judges, things like that, to actually get the outcomes that we want to get. And one thing that we have talked about is that in a lot of situations, especially with district attorneys, shame doesn't work because they came into that position wanting to be a hero, mm-hmm. and so they're resistant to the feeling of shame for doing their job, for what they feel is they're doing their job. And so we've talked about the different ins and outs of that, and that's something that you have to, of course, weigh carefully before you, before you use something like that. We felt like it would be effective in Lexington. That's why I chose not to pay the $35. I felt like the public pressure was going to mount against them, and it did, and it worked out that way, and I'm glad it did. What I, you know, Tavis, something that I would really like, you know, to, to talk about just a little bit is just kind of some of the things that this police department has done to people, because what they did to me is one thing. Sure, but go that's ahead. just go ahead. honestly just <laughs> nothing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the stories that we have been really pushing to get out is the story of this woman named um, Shawanda Kennedy. And she was 
assaulted. She told us that she was assaulted by the chief of police of Lexington. He was not chief of police of Lexington at the time. He was a police officer in a city called Goodman. But this man, he went to her home. He arrested her boyfriend, cuffed her in the house, and then sexually assaulted her. He put his hands in her pants and sodomized her. And her grandmother was actually on the phone and heard this entire thing happening and started, you know, talking on the phone. And, and this, this officer, who, again, is now the chief of police of Lexington, he picks up the phone and he starts going at it with this woman's grandmother. The grandmother sends a family member by the house to check on this woman. The officer tries to keep the family member out of the house. The family member pushes their way in, like puts their foot in the door to get in. And that is the only way that they end the situation. The chief, the, the current chief of police of Lexington held a woman hostage and assaulted her. And then I came back and threatened her the next day, actually that same night, and then again days later and arrested her when she, th- when she actually went and reported him. So she reported him to the Board of Aldermen. She went to the media. Nothing happened. It was a slap on the wrist. She tried to file a case against him. The court rejected her case. A few months ago, we tried to file a case against her in Justice Court in Lexington. The court accepted the filing and then a few days later rejected the filing. This is a situation where you have a system that is absolutely refusing to hold people accountable. I had a conversation with the district attorney in Lexington about holding this chief of police accountable, actually arresting him for this, and nothing has happened. She told me that she doesn't have the power to investigate this, that I need to go to the attorney general's office. So this is the thing that we're dealing with. This man has assaulted, at this point, multiple women. At one point, he assaulted a 16-year-old girl, beating her multiple times, holding his gun to her head. This, this man, he, just a few months ago, he assaulted the only female officer on the police force inside the police station. He choked her out when she ended their relationship. Other officers saw this and then lied about it. So what we are dealing with, we have a whole operation where people are just complicit. It's a whole, con- it's, it's a whole conspiracy where the mayor, where the courts are all conspiring to help this white, to help keep white supremacy going. I'm, I'm listening to you, as is the audience, and this sounds so like 1943, not 2023. Yeah. In Mississippi, that is how the law still works in so many places. You know, the law actually, just to be honest, as a lawyer, I say this. In Mississippi, the law does not really matter. What matters is who you get in court with, what judge you have, and whether that judge even gives a damn about the law. Hmm. When we come forward with uh, Jill Collins Jefferson, um, and I'm, I'm glad that she ex- expanded um, the scope of what's happening in this town in Mississippi because Lexington, because as she said, it wasn't, it isn't just what happened to her. It's the broader narrative here that I'm glad she sort of unpacked. Um, when we come forward, I want to uh, give her an opportunity to tell us more about the work of Julian, this civil rights and international human rights uh, law firm. Uh, named after Julian Bond. For those who are of a certain age, uh, we're going to give you a quick history lesson on who Julian Bond was. And I suspect uh, most of you have heard the name John Lewis. I want to also, you know, just probe Jill on this. 
as the, the farther we get away, and I've been fortunate to know most all these people over the course of my career, but the farther we get away uh, uh, from their time, their their heyday, as it were, um, the more relevant I think these stories become. And I, I am curious as to what Jill has made of her access to these icons like Julian Bond and John Lewis, who didn't just have a front row seat to history. They made history. They were a part. They are a part of American history. But to work with Julian Bond, to be taught by him and to work with John Lewis, um, there, there, there's something there that I want to probe. We'll talk about that when we come forward. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. I want to talk about the work of Julian in a moment, Gio, Colin, Jefferson. But let me just start by um, asking uh, how you process. I mean, I've been very fortunate in my career to, you know, talk to a lot of people and befriended a lot of people. And certainly those in the civil rights movement are at the top of my list of people that I have been blessed um, to get to know. But when you're hanging out with Julian Bond and you're hanging out with John Lewis, what's that like? You know, it's incredibly humbling. <laughs> you really, 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 you feel, you know, how much more you can do in this life, quite mm-hmm. honestly. It's just so many other issues pale in comparison when you're talking to them. Um, it was really just a beautiful thing to see how they live their lives, mm-hmm. like on a day-to-day basis, to see their personalities and to see how their personalities impacted their work. You know, Professor Bond, I don't know how many people know what a devilish sense of humor he had <laughs> and the types of jokes he would tell. And, you know, he was just so funny and so full of life. Um, and to see him, he put that into his work. He wanted other people to feel life. That's, that's, how, I, that's how I see freedom, the way I see it, because he taught me to see it that way. Mm-hmm. And so... My time with them, I I always, always think, like, you know, God meant for this to happen, and God meant for me to be in this work, or God would not have put me with those people and put me in the positions that I've been in. I know that it's meant to be, uh, that I have the training that I have, you know, that they've taken the time out, that they've taken out to to teach me what they've taught me. So I'm incredibly grateful for it. That's a beautiful thing to read about the the lore, uh, if you will, of these persons historically. Uh, in history books and all kinds of text, uh, it is quite another thing to to sit with them and to be taught by them and to have lunch with them and to write legislation with them. Um, Jill Colin Jefferson has had a chance to do all of that. Uh, I was looking at Julian Bond the other night. I was watching uh, for the umpteenth time the movie Ray, and I love his ca- <laughs> I, I love his cameo at the very end, as you'll recall. Um, Julian Bond makes a cameo at the end uh, in the Georgia State House. Uh, when they uh, bring Ray Charles in uh, to declare his song, the official state song uh, for the Peachtree State, for the state of Georgia, that is. Uh, And um, this is a beautiful thing to to see Julian make that cameo at the end of the movie, Ray. I'm glad the producers uh, had a good sense to, to give him a cameo in that movie. Um, uh, he enjoyed that. Yeah, I can. I can only imagine. I, I, I can only imagine how much he must have enjoyed. I saw him a few times after that, uh, and I teased him about it. But he, uh, 
It was amazing to sort of see him in that movie. When we come forward, our main moments with Jill Colin Jefferson will uh, give you a, a better understanding, broader understanding of what uh, Julian does. I, th- I think you got a sense of it, uh, but I want to just shout out this organization uh, for all the work they do regarding civil rights and human rights, and we'll do that when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. Just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 Tavis Smiley and Jill Colin Jefferson, who um, is a uh, bad sister. Um, she is the, the founder of Julian, a civil rights and international rights law firm. Uh, and we've been listening in this hour to her story of what happened to her, uh, the arrest for literally uh, filming a police stop. And uh, she found herself in jail for two days uh, around that. Uh, but more broadly, we've been talking in this hour about the work that they're doing in Lexington, Lexington, Mississippi, and beyond on behalf of everyday people. So, uh, Jill, I want to close our conversation by giving you a chance just to just uh, just brag a bit about the work of Julian. Yeah, thank you, Davis, for that. You know, so Julian, we're a nonprofit organization, and we do four things. We do litigation, we do organizing, we do policy, and we also have a focus on innovation. And that's because we believe that those four things together are going to create that kind of freedom that we talked about earlier. So that's our focus. We are the only organization in the country that has a focus on modern-day lynchings as well. We are focusing on lynchings that have happened to black and brown people after the year 2000. That is one of our areas of focus in addition to pretty much any other area of discrimination. But I can tell you that the work that we do is pretty much on the front lines. My team, we're often in the field investigating lynchings. We're often, you know, trying to infiltrate, you know, families of lynchers or hate groups or things like that. The work is incredibly, incredibly dangerous to the point where we often have to hide people. We often have to switch cars and sneak in and out of places to do the work that we do. It has to be covert most of the time. And in all of this work, we cannot do it if people don't support us. You know, and I think um, in saying that, Tavis, I want to thank you for your support because there are so few people in the media who give voice to black women who are leaders in this fight. It's usually almost almost exclusively men. And you've had me on your show multiple times to talk about these issues, and I appreciate that. Just know how much I appreciate you and the voice that you give to these issues and all the work that we are doing on the ground. Most of our work, we're a very young organization. We were founded in 2020. Largely our work focuses on Mississippi right now, but we have, we've gotten some great policy wins in Virginia. We've also gotten some great wins in other states, and I'm just really, really, really excited to see how far we're going to go. I see Julian being the future of civil and human rights in this country. Mm. I um, I celebrate um, your work and your witness, and um, uh, you will always have an audience on this program so long as I am hosting it, uh, because I want to make Thank sure you. that the word is out about uh, the issues that you're covering, uh, the realities that we are, uh, as black folks, still subjected to. I suspect there are folk listening uh, right now who were thrown off when you referenced modern-day lynchings. Yes, they still happen uh, in this country in various uh, spaces and places, and thankfully Julian is there 
on the front lines doing the work to um, make folk respect the humanity and dignity of folk who look like you and me. Once again, Julian is a civil and civil rights and international human rights law firm. Its founder is Jill Collin Jefferson. Uh, Google it, read about it for yourself, support him if you can. Uh, but Jill, always good to have you on this program. Uh, again, celebrate you and all that you are doing and uh, stay strong and stay safe. Thank you so much, Tavis. It's my pleasure. Good to have you back on. That's our program for today. Back here tomorrow. Michael Eric Dyson, uh, Brianna Joy Gray, Nikki Giovanni. Should be a great show tomorrow. Until then, thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith.